so this is like almost certainly going to be a political episode, huh? I mean, I, I assume politics will have to come into it at some yeah, point. It's yeah, it's part of the story. Yeah, well, that's why I said, because it's kind of, I feel like we should start date stamping these with everything going on. Because <laughs> we just kind of paid lip service last week because it's we were all kind of March still. It's March 103rd. Yeah, it's March 103rd. Uh, was it? Third week of riots have yeah. broken out Theory. across the country. It's June 8th. Uh, 2020, just in case we get black bagged. Uh, in case you're wondering, broadcasting Rome is from burning. The, yeah, we're still broadcasting from uh, Studio Gordon. Yeah, for now. Well, we might be moving to an undisclosed location <laughs> at some point. At some point, we'll become Rebel Radio. Um, Pirate I, so, Radio. Anyway, I, all that I'm to getting s- a boat, baby. Oh God, we got international waters, Arthur. It's my dream. <laughs> back to Scientology already. Okay, oh, go ahead. Yes, <laughs> we are. Wow, yeah, we didn't take as long to get back there at all. Anyway, I, I don't know, man. I just I wanted to bring it up. I might. Uh, do something different at the end when we get to the social media plugs, but I don't know. We're yeah. going to talk about politics this week, and hey, it drops this week, so it'll be you know, say what you need to say. Oh, we're going to drop this one. That's right. We're kind we're, of yeah. we're caught up we're with right our back. on top. Well, yeah. that was the other thing we didn't really say anything last week. We were kind of in a weird spot with yeah. our backlog, so it felt weird. But I guess we're up to date again. I don't know. Be safe out there, y'all. Yeah. Uh, do what you can. Be, be it's okay to fail. Like trying to do the right thing, just like. My Learn, advice is better. Spike Lee's advice is exactly that. Do the right thing. Do the right thing. And yeah. you know what that looks like. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, all of our DMs are open. Talk to us. Don't. If you've got a black friend you haven't talked to in a couple months, don't talk to them right now. <laughs> you can talk to us. We'll, That's fair. We'll point you in the right direction. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Don't do anything weird if you're trying to be a white ally. Uh, if you're not white, you're. Don't you make know, it about you. Yeah. If you're white, don't make it about you. Uh, I'm not gonna tell anything to anybody that's not white. Actually, I had I was gonna say something like, "No, I I got nothing, man. I'm I'm." But white people, yeah, like if you feel in the woods, we are too. But I don't know. We read a lot. We're on the internet too much. You can hit us up on Twitter or whatever. But if you uh, burn it to the ground, let it burn. Uh, yeah, be safe. Uh, don't, yeah, don't do anything stupid that's gonna get somebody else hurt. I don't yeah, know. yeah. But if no one's gonna get hurt, do what you got to do. Well, look, nobody listens to this podcast, so that's probably decent enough advice. Yeah, uh, nondescript locations, coming to you soon. Uh, that's all I've got. <laughs> Hi, welcome, Dustin. You want to tell people what they're here for? Um, um, I just want to, before I say that, welcome to the Good Trash Undercast, where we remember that um, property damage is part of Jesus' ministry in the Gospels. Moving right along. Well, yeah, in the words of Killer Mike, remember in the story of Jesus, the hero was killed by the state. Well, I'm just saying that he, you know, broke up a place of business and threw all their accoutrement down the stairs and then beat all of them up with a whip. Yeah, I'm not going to tell you to go to a life church and uh, you know flip the Joel Osteen table over or anything. <laughs> but if you do that, I'll probably I don't know like you've got give good your company. bail fund or something. <laughs> I'm just saying you've got good company. I'm saying you'll go to jail. Yeah, I'm saying it'll go badly. I'm also saying you know I mean it's probably illegal. You know some, some great men went to jail. That's right. But um, you'll have good company. Um, Jesus of Nazareth being among them. Moving right along. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to the Good Trash Undercast, where we gather around a table and we discuss the films you'll never discuss, sadly, this week in a film studies course, because we're looking at a gem right now. A true hidden 90s classic. Um, as we talk about Jacob's Ladder, which is not about um, electrical uh, equipment you might build with a Tesla coil. I thought it was going to be like a competition of people like doing that weird thing with string on their hands. It is also not about the very extreme uh, penile piercing. Uh, what? I'll tell you about it off air. I yeah. don't, don't want to know. Yeah, you've done 
done some the things are left unsaid. You've done the math. I don't know. No, I don't need it. No. Yeah. I'm still Dustin. I'm still Dalton. I'm still Arthur. And we're so glad that you're all here talking with us about this movie. In case you're tuning in for the very first time, we want to tell you that the Good Trash Donor Cast is not a review show. Oh, no. It is an analysis show. And even though this film comes from 1990, uh, in the year of our Lord, we are going to avoid spoilers in the first part of the show. The way we do this is through this methodology or liturgy, if you will. Uh, we begin with the synopsis, uh, which sometimes is more spoilerific than other times, but we'll see what happens because this is a challenging synopsis. So I'm going to do my best, and I think I've done a good job. I I'm get, very excited. I give you full leeway, my friend. Um, after that, we move into our thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. Yes, we do a little bit of review, even though this is not a review show. Just talking about our reactions, our gut punch uh yeah just just you know feelings as we watch the film then we move into a section of the show we call expanding the syllabus in which we're like maybe in a film size course and we're teaching this movie and what other movies and or readings we might or might not teach it with a thought experiment of such yes or of sorts rather and then from there we get down to business and that's analysis time guys and that's when we do not care about spoilers and we're going to talk about tim robbins dancing in the moonlight with s epath the Merkison and um, you know that musical section at the end of the film um, that actually doesn't happen. I made that up. Um, I was about to say, did I fall asleep? Oh, she reads her palm. Did you, did you, did you see? The... I got so hung up on whether or not this, the the rosebud thing was a sled or a person. I totally checked out at the end. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah she's great. Um, but anyway, um, by the uh, well, more on that anon. Yeah. So we'll talk about all of that at the end of the show. There'll be some musical cues to let you know that we've gotten down to business, and you'll know that we're wearing nothing but socks when this occurs. Mm. So um, you've been warned, dear listener. Without any further ado, Doctor Reverend uh, Bishop Arthur. H.T. Gordon. I Esquire. Esquire. If you would, hit us up with that synopsis, please. Following a tragic experience in the jungles of Vietnam, veteran infantryman Jacob Singer returns to normal life in New York as a postal worker, even after attaining a doctorate. Singer stays with his girlfriend Jezebel and lives a rather routine life until weird things start happening. People begin following him. He starts to see faces and bizarre oddities. His doctor turns up dead. His fellow soldiers also start dying. Jacob slowly begins losing touch of what is real. Is it a government conspiracy? Was he part of a military drug test? Where does the world end and the subconscious begin? While it opened at number one the first weekend in November, the film quickly dropped out and barely recouped its $25 million budget. But since then, the film has gained a solid cult status and has served as an inspiration on a number of projects, including the Silent Hill game series. Mm -hmm. This is Jacob's Ladder, and we have to uh, extend a great thanks to Brigham Cole, our dear, uh, sweet patron friend, uh, friend of the show forever. Uh, one of yeah, our personal friend of uh, all of ours, yeah. Patreon sponsors who has uh, chosen this film for us as part of his uh, awards package over on Patreon. Uh, and he was very excited to choose it. Dalton was very excited that he chose it, mm -hmm. and so we are here to talk all about Tim Robbins and Adrian Lynn and Jacob's Ladder. And I want to personally, uh, obviously, also, yes, thank you so much, Brigham. I also want to extend some thanks to Jason Manzukas. I know he'll probably never hear this, but uh, I think he might be the reason I, I know. I knew about this movie, but I think he's had a big, uh, it's a running joke of his on the podcast, How Did This Get Made? And I think it probably has had something to do with some of this movie's cult, uh, Not maybe nothing to do with its initial cult gathering but maybe has helped keep it going a little bit i think because uh it's a popular podcast it's a big running joke and i like every time i watch a movie where i think i might be watching a jacob's ladder scenario we'll explain what that means later i guess uh i think of him um 
but yeah, I, uh, I, Brigham, thank you so much for picking this. Uh, I've been looking forward to talking about this on the show for a while. I yeah. finally caught up with it maybe two or three years ago. Yeah. And I, I, as soon as I watched it, I was like, oh, we'll get to this on the show at some point. So yeah, this is going to be a fun one. Yep, very good, very good. Thank you, Brigham. You are awesome, and we apologize for not mentioning your name earlier, but you are awesome, and we really, really very much appreciate you. So, without any further ado, though, let's talk about our initial reactions to the film. Um, just for um, a show of hands and or voices, who has seen this movie before? Arthur has, Dalton has. Yes. Okay, I had, but not since I was 11. Oh, so yeah. like you saw it probably when it was, on, it was on like HBO or yeah, yeah. And, and, and I honestly had no memory whatsoever. So that's okay, what fun. I want to make sure that we are all clear. Yeah, I on think that. I watched it a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. It's been in the last couple of years, I know, because gotcha. it's been logged on my new letterbox. So I, I strongly remember him telling his chiropractor he looks like a overgrown Angel? cherub. Yep. Yeah, uh, yeah, great Danny Aiello performance oh, here. R.I.P. Um, good guy. Oof. One of the greats. So, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, it's funny, Dustin. Again, I, I'd watched it, you know, much with Arthur within the last couple of years. I had forgotten how much I didn't remember about this movie. And uh, that might be, uh, you know, a virtue of sort of how the film is structured. But, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think you being 11 last time you saw it had uh, a whole lot to, well, probably had a little to do with it. You uh, killed I mean, a lot of brain cells since th- then. There's been some years. <clears throat> but that said, I think the structure of this film does lend it to rewatch yeah. in, in ways that are really fun. So, without any further ado, then, let's go ahead and talk about those thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews and reactions to the film. Arthur, so, what do you think of Jacob's Ladder? I'm not going to lie, I was a little hesitant coming into this rewatch. The first time I watched it, I wasn't in love with the movie. Mm-hmm. So I was very hesitant at how I would react this time. And it's still a movie I'm wrestling with on that level of, do I like it, do I not like it? Like Jacob with the Angels. Yes, and I think that nothing else can be said that I respect the heck out of this movie. I, I really mm-hmm. do. To kind of despite those feelings of, you know, do I think this works or could this be different? You know, there are those things I'm grappling with. But as an experience, I think it totally works. I think that's the true, like, film lover stamp of approval right there is I respect it, which means I still don't know if I like it or not. Yeah. Which, I, yeah, I kind of love being there with the movie. Yeah. And, I you know, I spent some time today looking at it, researching it, kind of reading about it and reading some some of the press junket stuff that Adrian and, and Tim did uh, when it came out. And so and the, and the screenwriter, uh, Ruben, I think. Um, had Peter done, Paul Rubens, something like that. Yeah, uh, Bruce uh, Joel Rubin. There it is. And uh, Herman, yes, who Herman. also wrote last week's film Deep Impact and what? made his name with Ghost. That's right. And that's how they got this made. Kind of. Yeah. Uh, and this was one kind of a pre-blacklist list. This is one of the top unproduced scripts of the '80s. Yeah, it sat in developmental hell for a while. It was circled by uh, I think Mamet and, and it some feels others. very much like a 1980 film, yeah. much more than a 1990 film. Yeah. But it, I mean, I think it was early '80s. It was written and it took a while. And finally, Lynn was actually working on. He was going to do the uh, Bonfire of the Vanities, and he was signed on to do Bonfire of the Vanities, the remake, because that's a Wells movie, I believe, right? Originally, no, I don't know. Anyway, uh, doesn't matter. But uh, Lynn left that project to work on this because he f- just fell in love with the script. Well, and interestingly enough, he uh, was also really wanting, um, I believe, n- m- who? Tom Hanks. It was Tom Hanks, okay, who and, left to do ban- Bonfire of the yep. Vanities. Yeah, Tom Hanks was in contention for the Tim Robbins role for a while. Yeah, there, was, there were several. Al Pacino was in talks. I mean, yeah. there, there were a lot of big names. Weird that age role. range, too. Yeah, <clears throat> it was kind of all over the place. Yeah. Well, um, and I, well, more on that anon. But yeah, anyway, sorry, kind of a, a tangent. But I think that needless to say, I, my research of this movie kind of, allowed me to admire it more and kind of learning about the visual inspiration, the photographers mm-hmm. uh, that kind of inspired it and the artists and, you know, Francis Bacon and others. And 
oh, there was an artist, a uh, photographer, and I don't think I wrote her name down, sadly, um, who inspired some of the imagery as well. Uh, but the, the visual style itself, the, the idea of this, uh, the first tailed creature he encounters on the subway mm. instantly kind of sets that tone, that jump cut to that subway sequence is, is really powerful. Uh, all of the kind of shaking head stuff, and I'll talk about that in a second. Oh, yeah. The visions in the subway car, uh, the hospital, that hospital, the scent is Man. just frightening and anxiety-inducing. The onset special effects, so what he did with the head-shaking thing is he shot this in a lower four frame per second uh, rate, and then he bumped it up to 24 frames per second. So he was shooting these special effects on on the set. And, yeah, they want to do everything uh, in camera, yeah. if at all possible. And then, dude, yeah. bumped it up to, to make it work. Well, that's how that tool video is put together, too. Well, so it makes sense, yeah. And, uh, I mean, and, and as Arthur said, this the head-shaking technique we'll probably talk about more. It's, yeah, a lot of people saw this movie, uh, well, not a lot of people saw this movie, but enough saw it and were like, that's the coolest shit I have ever seen. I yeah. want to do it. And, I mean, critics, yeah. you know, respond. he was mentioning that this is one of the better critically received movies he had had at the time. Um, and so... I think there's something to the just the artistic style of this movie that's very well received and very well respected. Um, you know, Ruben's screenplay uh, it feels kind of one note because you know he had this dream that he was in a subway, mm -hmm. and that's kind of the basis of this. And then he kind of had this Buddhist uh, background. He went to some monasteries and temples and studied and, and practiced. And so you kind of come at it with that angle. Vajrayana Buddhism for you, dear listener, who are paying attention. Uh, and so I think some of those elements used to stretch it to two hours don't completely work for me. Uh, I don't actually hold that against it. There's a means to that end, and I'm more amused by the structure than anything because there's no plot for like an hour, and then all of a sudden there's a subplot to kind of take us through the finale, and they've cut about 30 minutes out of this. There's a lot more in that third act that actually got cut to the... Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, I saw that. There's, well, it kind of sounds like the stuff they pulled I think it worked, probably and, for the best. Yeah, and so um, it, it trims it pretty nicely, I think. But I think that structure is really interesting, and, and I kind of thought about it, you know, it feels odd, but oftentimes that's life. Nothing happens for long spurts, and then suddenly everything happens at once. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's something a bit poetic about that. Uh, just to see a wide-release studio-adjacent picture like this, you know, Paramount initially greenlit it, and then there was some turnover, and it got canned, and then Carol Co. picked it up. Uh, but to put $24 million behind this and bring in a, I mean, a hot upstart like Tim Robbins, who'd come off of uh, uh, Bull Durham and some other work, Cadillac Man, yeah. and to kind of lead this and kind of take the risk with him, uh, I think is just a fascinating movie you don't see from studios anymore. And I've been on this kind of 90s and 80s thrillers kick. You know, I watched The Perfect Murder last night with Michael Douglas and Gwyneth Paltrow. Yes. Um, which is, did blockbuster numbers. But it's the type of movie we don't get anymore, even Days of Thunder or things like that. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm kind of fascinated with that they took a chance on something like this. And, and there's a lot of hesitation about it. You can read it in the uh, press junket stuff going up to the release. Um, and it's a movie solely about establishing dread and fear and uncertainty, and it really doesn't excel in that. And, you know, I think if you judge a movie for what it is and what it's trying to do, I think it succeeds tenfold in that regard. Um, and the other thing is, and we're not, I don't, I can't spoil it. I don't want to talk about it, but the twist, you know, feels pretty obvious for me from the outset. And I don't think this movie is really about that, that twist. Uh, for me, it feels pretty telegraphed immediately. On I would the say deliberately so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think he's planting those seeds in your mind immediately. Yeah. And so... Uh, I, I think this is more about that spiritual investigation, that that idea of life and death. And, you know, they say the Vietnam stuff, Lynn just kind of added that in to, to get it somewhere. Mm. Uh, and I think it is more about that, that spiritual journey that, that is taking place here and that is kind of influenced from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Um, you know, I, I don't think it ever tries to hide that, unlike some other stuff that inspired it. I don't want to say what I'm talking about because I don't want to spoil because they have similar endings, but... 
you know, on, on the whole, it's it's a movie I've thought a lot about uh, today. It's a movie I I'm just endlessly fascinated about. The more I think about it, the more images I looked up. Some of Francis Bacon's art, mm. you know, to kind of see because he, he did that blurred imagery type stuff, really horror, and you know, I can definitely see that influence. And then the Geiger it's stuff, a little as Gustav well. Gudore going on there yeah. too. And yeah. so uh, all that kind of that intertextual art element of it, and, and Lynn's background, and uh, where that that takes takes him, and where it took him here. I think it's endlessly fascinating. So if nothing else, as as just kind of an artifact of the time, I, I think it's endlessly fascinating, endlessly uh, discussion-worthy. And so, you know, I, yeah, I like it. I mean, sure. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying don't watch it. I'm saying it's very much worth the time, I think. Gotcha. Very good, very good. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Hey, Dalton, what do you think of Jacob's Ladder? Man, Jacob's Ladder's a hell of a picture, huh? Uh, it, it, there's a, a real... Uh, stuck out of timeness about it that I think resonates with me, and I know it's a weird place to start with my review, but I think uh, it maybe speaks to some some of the, the things you mentioned, Arthur, because this film it comes out in 1990 that is set in 1975 that had probably like a, most of its production done on it within the 80s. So there is a kind of a real uh, interesting out-of-timeness to this film that, uh, you know, once we... Yeah, crack open the spoiler seals a little bit later on in the show. I think we'll have more fun talking about. But just to say it at this point, the way in which scenes in this film kind of jump out of time or out of reality or out of comprehension um, only serve to uh, really uh, uh, con. Uh, uh, what's the the right way? I want compliment. That's the word I want to use. It complements that that out of timeness this film has because. The, I don't know about you guys. The transfer I watched was pretty good. It was on Hoopla, weirdly. So I watched it with ads. I watched it. Yeah, I watched it with ads on uh, Pluto. Oh, that's where I watched it. No, I watched yeah. it on Pluto. Yeah, uh, I watched it on the Internet Archive. Okay. Well, whatever print I don't. Uh, I know Arthur and I had the same print. I don't know about you, Dustin, but the print that I watched was in really pretty great shape. Yeah, I was surprised. And the thing that I, th- I think is interesting about the look of this film is this very was s- yours put out by Studio Canal? Yeah. No, I still had yeah. it. Was that Studio? Yeah. Canal yeah. Print. So yeah, yeah, that's the same one I saw. Okay. It's got this really kind of soft focus, soft light to it, um, despite the weird, spooky stuff going on. And we haven't really... Uh, Arthur's kind of touched on the the feelings of anxiety that this film produces and the dread that it produces. But there is a real unmooring uh, feeling that this film has. And again, I, I attribute that to kind of these jumps around time and reality, this kind of, wait, what, what year does this movie take place in? That kind of aspect of it. All of that stuff really comes together to make you constantly unsure of what is happening in a, in a way that really works because that is the journey that Tim Robbins is on in this film. Um, and I, I will agree with Arthur to, to not say too much. I think the film starts lampshading what's going on basically in like the fourth scene of the film uh, almost right away. Um, and I, I think that's super effective because I think if this film tries to bury the lead on what it's doing, it becomes very stupid. Um, and I think works that have followed this, that have tried to emulate Jacob's Ladder, uh, ha- have done so uh, less well. Uh, and I think not bearing the lead is what gives this film a strength, because as soon as you have an inkling of what this story is actually about, it really does allow you as a as a viewer to get to do some fun mental gymnastics. And I think those are the films that I, I, I like the best. That's what usually responds to me, is, is a film that... Uh, 
it is allowing a lot of its themes to work in the margins because if you, I don't know I think if you can overstate if you overstate something it can be a little didactic which you know works for some people Dustin's already referenced Spike Lee and I think you know people get, mm-hmm. get after him for his films being didactic and I don't agree with that I think his films need to be usually uh, but a film like this that's a little bit wooier and it's it's sense of reality and scope. Um, I think that mystery is, is really effective. Uh, you want, I think, um, as a viewer, at least I do. I, I think uh, what I'm looking for is that sense of don't tell, don't tell me everything, don't show me everything. Let me fill in the gaps. Let me do some of the legwork. Let me have fun watching your weird thing unfold. And I really do find that to be a strength of Jacob's Ladder is, despite letting you kind of know right up front what's going on. It plays so many tricks on you that it allows your brain to go in a lot of different directions that regardless of what the text is wanting to say, it gets the viewer's wheel spinning in a way that I think can be really productive. And I think we'll have fun with when we get to analysis for sure. Um, and, you know, that can be a complaint of a film like this. So there's a lot of like pseudo religious window dressing to make it seem deep. Um, and sure, you could levy that critique at plenty of films. Uh, maybe even this one, maybe something like The Cell. Uh, I think a lot of like kind of middle brow, high concept thrillers, you could say, well, you know, they're just classing it up and okay, sure. But all of that being said, I, I don't know. I kind of like it. Um, I don't think that's a valid criticism here necessarily. And we, again, we can talk about that more later, but uh, I kind of go for that. I, I think sometimes if you just drop a theme in, if if you've wrestled with it enough, even if you don't like fully articulate the film stance on something, it can still be effective. And I think for me, Jacob's Ladder does that uh, just by, again, as Arthur said, the filmmaking t- itself puts you in unreality, puts you in various states of an- anxiousness uh, in such a way that, you know, all of these these reference to, references to famous visual art, all these references to uh, religion and, and uh, philosophy and all, all of these references to governmental conspiracies and military cover-ups, uh, all of these things fit so nicely together because they all kind of occupy the same part of the human brain, right? That part that is looking for patterns, that is needing uh, a world that is orderly. And as Arthur said, sometimes life just doesn't do anything and then a bunch of shit happens at once for no reason. Uh, and again, I think that is all part of the weird alchemy of Jacob's Ladder. Uh, is as a film that wants you to engage those parts of your brain that, uh, you know, where mystical thinking comes from, where uh, conspiratorial thinking comes from, where religious thinking comes from. And I know I kind of lumped those things together in a way that, I don't know, might make you feel weird, but I don't think it should. I like that part of my brain that uh, likes to look at things that have no real clear answer, which is why I like weird shit like Jacob's Ladder. Also, uh, give me more horror films that are about war. Uh, you know, an unequivocally... Um, pretty much agreed upon horrific experience to live through. Uh, yeah, I, I think that is a an area that is ripe for horror, and there's, you know, a handful of films in the horror war subgenre. Maybe we can talk about that later in the show, but this is probably one of the best. Um, I don't know what, Dog Soldiers is pretty good, too, I guess. I don't know. This is the one that, like, if you wanted me to come up with a movie that's, like, about either war or warfare or veterans issues and is also a horror film, I think this is probably the first one to mention, and I, I think that is very valuable. Now I'm just rambling. I like the movie a lot, Dustin, to answer your question. Platoon is the scariest movie about war I've ever seen. No, that's a good... Ooh. I, war, a platoon it's, is a horror movie. Is yes, a class it is. that I would go... I would audit, yeah. Yes. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, Yeah, I like the movie a lot, and I think it works um, because 
as you guys were saying, um, it does not bury the lead in terms of the twist, but it does not make the twist undo everything else. Sure. In so far as everything that we see is true as well as the way in which is resolved by its twist. Yeah, they call I, this a tomato surprise on TV tropes, which is where, like, you think the story's one thing, and in the 11th hour you get a new piece of information that kind of recontextualizes everything. Yeah, That's it, what they call that kind of twist. It, it's, like it's not doing that. Multiple things. Yeah. And and I and I like that a lot. You were um, about to say something, Arthur? Well, I just, I, I have a really high, hard time, I think, calling it even a twist. Same, yeah. At right. At this point. Yeah. Because, that's, like, that's, like you're, you're revealing pretty quickly... What's going the, on. What's going on. Yeah. But also... There is a process of discovery that's not false yeah. throughout, and yes, that's interesting because, yeah. of course— It's almost more of a mystery yeah, in, the, in a way. Yeah. Well, and it, it kind of operates as like a real um, you know, a Hitchcock bomb under the table thing. Like It's a real dramatic irony in terms of letting it be a mystery for the lead character and letting the audience kind of— Kind of know— Be maybe two to three steps ahead of the protagonist. Yeah, 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 for sure. And so I think it works. Uh, the special effects are amazing. Oh, Tim cool. Robbins is amazing. Um, all the other performances are really, really great. Uh, a lot of great little extra little character actors. Could have used there. more Ving Rhames. Could have uh, used more— um, Oh, my God. Seinfeld. Uh, oh, yeah. Jason uh, Alexander. Jason Thank you, Alexander. Jason Alexander. Could have used a lot more of young Jason Alexander. Could have used a little more Macaulay Culkin. Not credited. Which is bizarre. This is before Home Alone. It's before Home Alone. Odd. Uh, the the, the uh, scuttlebutt that I found is because of his famously difficult father. It's mm. probably why Culkin didn't get a credit. Checks out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, could use, I mean, a little yeah. bit more of that. And so everything, you know, all those bits and pieces, they work really well together. And it is this sort of like um, kind of flawless stitching together of several different kinds of themes that um, to juggle all of those um, particular bowling pins or to spin mm-hmm. all those particular plates or whatever metaphor you want to use uh, to do that so deftly is really pretty impressive. So um, yeah, I'm a big fan and I won't say more about it than that because you guys have already said it. It's great. Um, I really enjoyed it and uh, I remembered nothing. And not a thing, huh? Not a thing. I'm telling you what, that uh, dance party... Uh, I had forgotten a lot of that entire sequence. Yeah, no. No memory whatsoever. That uh, descent into the surgery ward, nothing. Remembered all of that. Nope. Nope, nothing. And so, um, yeah, was just <sighs> taken aback. God, there's some good good horror set pieces in this there film. That's no way. I mean, it opens with a great one. Yeah. yeah. Ugh. Yeah. So, yeah, it's fantastic. So, yeah, enjoyed it thoroughly, and I think we need more movies like Let this. Let me hit you guys with something before we kind of move on, uh, since we're all so positive on this. Does this feel kind of like, a, I don't know, in the, like, proto-A24 coaching tree to you guys? Like, that kind of... Hmm. Uh, smart. Uh, the, and I say that to the mean, smart like... smart genre film. Yeah, it's a genre film that is still a genre film, and, you know, we're not going to call it art horror. What, what is it? Well, Elevated I, horror. We're not no, going to call it that. I but. think it's a horror film. I mean, and yeah. I think you look at The Hunger, too, and you probably look at some of Ridley's earlier, you know, mm-hmm. Alien as well. I mean, you've got these directors who are working from a very artistically influenced style. I mean, and I mean that from, they're looking at art. I mean, they're yeah. looking at your... Well, and that's why I invoke Bacons that. Bacon's or your... Uh, Red Dragon, I can't think of his name. Oh, God, yeah. I know uh, William Blake. Yeah, Thank William you. Blake. I mean, you're looking at guys who are looking at that. They're looking at, you know, the kind of uh, avant-garde photography of the time, and they're drawing inspiration from that and really allowing that to kind of influence their style. And so I think there is a kind of level of artistic merit to it that's yeah. not even present in A24. Well, I, well, here's who I was really thinking of. I'm thinking, like, Eggers with The Witch and The Lighthouse. I'm thinking uh, Ari... 
Yeah. You know, I, I'm thinking of well, even some of um. Oh god, I can't think of his name, but uh, it follows, which isn't an A24 oh, yeah, release, yeah, yeah. I don't think, but it's yeah. kind of. Again, I guess it is this the genre films that are all coming from teams that are have an artistic commitment. Have yeah, as you said, Arthur, there's uh, there's gesture gestures towards high art, right? Yeah, there's an I attempt it, to like do something like visually or yeah. narratively interesting, but it's still just you know it's it's a it's gore, it's spooky, yeah. it's yeah. Yeah, there's that mix of commercial and artistic there it levels is. Yeah. to it. Yeah, and you know, kind of we talked about that. I mean, all the time with Drive, right? Sure, it's elevated kind of genre film. Yeah, but again, I, I don't know the the low budget maybe here. And again, twenty five is not nothing in ninety dollars, nineteen ninety dollars. But still, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, that's maybe what I would thought about a little bit as I was watching it. And since I knew we we're kind of all on the same page, and you know, Dustin, you kind of said I want more like this. And I guess all I'm saying is I think we do still get a lot like this. We just don't get it as like. Big studio releases, there you know maybe right. eight hundred screen releases, and I think it's Trent's mother, right? Well, yeah, sure. Uh, oh boy, talk about it. That's a weird one. Yeah, I mean that's I mean Paramount releases this just balls to the this wall. This movie, Madden's knowing that movie, they might not make any money, which is on. probably the closest thing to a Jacob's Ladder type situation, sure, in in modern production history. Yeah, that checks out. Yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to throw that that football around, and see what we thought about it. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. So there there are our thoughts, and they are generally positive about Jacob's Ladder, dear listener. Uh, we're going to move on to that thought experiment that we had talked about earlier in the show um, that is expanding the syllabus and so you are now teaching a class in which this is a class period a module or part of a syllabus what does it look like what's the class how much do you want to build out is totally up to you and uh, what are the additional readings and or viewings Dalton Easy. I ask you first well Dustin I bad news it's time for the spoiler band-aids to come off because my syllabus is spoilery I know. Look, sometimes we've got to do it at this part in the show, so we're going to do it quick. Uh, so you've been dead the whole time. Welcome to my class. You're dead. Um, Have I'll prob- you heard the news that you're dead? I'll probably make uh, do some like weird, uh, I'll just say some bullshit half cones as the students come in every day, uh, asking them to consider whether or not they're already dead. Um, but yeah, we're just going to watch movies and read stuff in which the protagonist uh, has been dead the whole time, which, yes, is the plot of Jacob's Ladder. And as Jason Manzoukas uh, shouts all the time, is this a Jacob's Ladder situation? Which is a, a fun headcanon to do for basically any movie you watch. Uh, but we are going to be looking at films in which somebody's been dead the whole time. Uh, and we're going to be starting with this film and um, uh, a short story that is a huge inspiration on it called An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, super famous short story. You've probably heard of it. But if you haven't, listener, it is... More or less the plot of Jacob's Ladder. That's uh, the one I was avoiding. In. Yeah, I figured that was who you were wanting to name check yeah. beside not. Ambrose to. Beerus is great. Just That's the only one I've read. Is more Read more is okay. what I'm going to say to everyone. I got bad news for you, Dustin. I'm probably not going to. I, uh, I used I, to use it when I taught. Maybe that makes do a comparison sense. with the, uh, the short film. Gotcha. I, I read it in high school uh, as part of like a short stories uh, section, I think, maybe. I can't remember. Thanks to whichever English teacher had me read that. I'm sorry. It's all a blur now. Incident at Sarcosa. Okay, go on. Is that an, another Ambrose? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, is it Carcosa or Sarcosa? Carcosa. Uh, okay. Well, I should probably read it then, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, all right. I'll read that one. If you like Lovecraft. Yeah, well, I figured by the title. So, anyway... Uh, I like Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge a lot. It's not as spooky as this, um, and, and the the ending is much more of a rug pull than Jacob's Ladder. But in terms of working from a place of you know wartime fear towards uh, dreams for what life could be and could have been, um, I think just 
maybe back to back or maybe even in the same day uh, or same week looking at uh, Owl Creek Bridge and Jacob's Ladder is going to be a fun time. I think it's going to be a really interesting thought experiment to kind of look at these together. Uh, maybe we'll try to get some supplemental readings on uh, the Civil War and the Vietnam War to kind of like bolster both works. Uh, but then we'll kind of move on. I think we'll probably spend most of our time on just those two works because I think there's probably a lot that can be done there like the first two or three weeks of class. Yeah. Um, but then we're going to move on. Uh, we're going to do a... Uh, two uh, Clint Eastwood films that are basically the same movie from the 80s. It's High Plains Drifter and Pale Rider. Nice. Uh, which, yeah, both kick a lot of ass. They're probably two of Clint's best films and kind of two of his most forgotten films. I don't know. I've only ever seen them on television uh, with commercials, but I like them both a lot and would literally watch either one of them right now. Uh, they're both pretty standard Clint Eastwood westerns. Uh, dude shows up, kicks some ass, leaves. That's the movie. But in both of these, there is the implication that he is some sort of supernatural specter who has come to uh, bring justice to America for its uh, wanton um, capitalist ways. Uh, because these are both stories about like evil li- uh, landowners or mine owners uh, in some capacity. Uh, weirdly like pro-labor movies, considering when they came out and considering who made them. Um, I don't know. I, I think they're both fascinating films. I think that whole era of Clint's filmography is just full of like forgotten gems that are way more subversive than they got credit for. Um, I don't know, man. I don't know what happened to Clint. He see, you look at his seventies and eighties work and he seems like a super interesting, um, kind of radical dude. Uh, I don't know what happened to him, but I like both of those movies. And I think looking at this from the, the, the lens of what can you do if you take this kind of on its surface horror premise and apply it to an action protagonist, I think you can have a lot of fun. Uh, I also think you could, uh, I don't know, we might, uh, I might have everybody read um, uh, the piece that uh, Priscilla Page did for Birth, Movies, Death, talking about the artistic influences on the John Wick franchise. Uh, and I only say that, too, because Arthur's kind of talked about some of the artistic influences uh, going on within Jacob's Ladder. There's some other, like, classical renaissance and other high art uh, stuff going on in John Wick that all allude to Maybe the Wick world is like hell. Maybe this, this is all literally an afterlife. Yeah. Um, and we probably won't watch those films, but I think that's a good reading, and we can kind of talk about the the use of, uh, you know, Renaissance art that evokes the afterlife to kind of like talk about. Look, you can put a lot of shit in the background of your movie to drag out your themes, and I think uh, even more than a uh, High Plains Drifter, Pale Rider does that through its the use of uh, a lot of uh, scripture that it includes within the film. Um, just kind of deliberate and again it's you you can evoke religion and make your movie seem smarter than it is but just by putting that on the table i think you help with conversations of analysis Mm -hmm. Uh, because even if it turns out you did something stupid uh by trying to sound smart that that in of itself can lead to some cool conversations next we're going to uh kind of stay in the action groove but we're going to pivot more back to thrillers and look at source code with jake gyllenhaal the duncan jones film which is quite good um and uh, is kind of a fun so you were dead the whole time meets a groundhog's day which i think is going to be a good time for everybody i think even pairing that with moon which kind of plays with this trope in a really i think interesting way Ooh, i like that yeah maybe we'll throw moon in there too because you're right it's doing a different thing but a very similar note uh we'll also go to the the granddaddy of so you were dead the whole time film not the granddaddy but the um grandson uh, let's say the prodigal son of uh, You Were Dead the Whole Time movies, The Sixth Sense. we got to talk about it. It's also super good. You've forgotten how good it is, I promise. I can't and, believe that Haley Joel Osment was dead the whole time. I know, right? The wild. And crazy. Can you believe that Donnie Wahlberg was a, a zombie? So wild. I'm Unbelievable. So Next, we will go to a 
So it turns out your family was dead the whole time film. And we'll pivot back to full-fledged real-life horror with We Need to Talk About Kevin, uh, the Lynn Ramsey film that's very, very good. Uh, and is a very interesting subversion on this. So um, spoilers, spoilers, spoilers for We Need to Talk About Kevin. It seems Thanks. like John C. Riley. Oh, have you not seen this one, Arthur? Uh, all right. Well, look. It's good, man. It's so good. I know. I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot so, of movies, Dustin. There's a lot of movies. Uh, so uh, you spend most of this movie following Tilda Swinton, and it seems like her life since her kid became a school shooter has been really sad for some reasons, and it turns out the reasons are even sadder than you have gleaned already. Um yeah, anyway, but I think those are going to be the films we're going to look at, and there's an, a, a mix of what you can do with this premise, because it is an extreme, and we'll probably do a day of, like, bring your favorite example of this to class day, because there's, there's so many of these. I, I really had to edit the list. The Others. The Others, the others. is great, yeah. Uh, Silent Hill, as Arthur has mentioned, which takes a lot from Jacob's Ladder. Um, not always a full, we're dead the whole time situation, and uh, those first, like, two or three games have multiple endings. Uh, but I know some of the endings in the first one have a you were a whole dead, dead the whole time situation. Shit, we might even actually watch uh, the Silent Hill movie. Which I really is not want to good. do that on the show sometime. Oh, man. Yeah, I'd like to do that on the show sometime. Anyway, that's the class. We I think need it'll more be fun. Paul W.S. Anderson anyway. So, yeah. That's him, is it? Uh, no, that one's not him. I oh, think it's not? No, that's not W.S. Anderson. Ah, it's too bad. I agree, though. He's an interesting filmmaker. Correct. Um, made an entire mm. career of just like bragging about how hot his wife is. Weird career. Whatever gets you to the dance. Uh, look, hey, man, Mia Rob Jovovich Zombie is, did the same thing. He so. did. I, uh, Mia Jovovich is a better actress than Sherry Moon. No offense. No, I don't mean that's a dick. Taken. Sherry's good, too. I uh, just, you know, look, if we're going to compare and contrast the Sherry just has couples. a better asset um, than... Um, well, look, now you've, Lilu. now you've ruined this for everyone. I'm done. <laughs> Lilu Dallas multipass. Arthur, what's your class about, huh? Uh, mine is The Mad Men, a second British invasion. Mm. Um, and this is going to be a one-week study during a course on the evolution of classic Hollywood cinema movements. Nice. Uh, yeah. So I, I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I think it'd be interesting to at least note, uh, because when these guys all show up, um, we're right in the middle of uh, the new Hollywood. Mm -hmm. and so you got all those guys, Scorsese, De Palma, Coppola, doing their thing and kind of shifting Arthur Penn uh, and shaping a kind of more violent uh, cinema. And one of the articles I read and talks about how in, in I think, 76 or so, uh, when uh, Alan Parker showed up at Con with uh, Bugsy Malone, uh, really kind of changed uh changed some things and got him brought over to hollywood and, mm. uh, and then he kind of started bringing in these other guys to start working in hollywood as well um and i want to look at sam delaney's uh the british admin who saved hollywood uh, it's a guardian article from 2007 um it is you know nothing else other than a resource but it really is kind of a profile and highlights uh the the, the five uh, guys i want to talk about uh in this little week study um uh, but i want to share a quote here from from uh lynn um who directed jacob's ladder he says i remember making this advertisement up in yorkshire when i got a message that stanley kubrick had called he'd seen an ad i'd made for milk in which i'd used a particular type of graduated filter he wanted to know exactly which filter i'd used um and so we've got these five guys who are working in advertising adrian lynn i think starts as a copywriter mm -hmm. and then kind of moves into commercial direction and doing things here. And, and these other filmmakers are picking up on styles and techniques that aren't being used in film that they can use for their films. And, and if I'm not mistaken, I think it is Lynn um, gets offered a, a second assistant director position on Barry Lyndon. Oh, cool. Uh, which That's he turned down. Nice. Oh, he turned it down. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, that offer extended, uh, I think was a 
pretty big sign of you know co-signing his talent and ability gotcha. uh, from Kubrick, no, no less. Uh, and so I, I want to look at the the works of Adrian Lynn, uh, Tony and Ridley Scott, uh, Alan Parker, and Hugh Hudson. Uh, and so I think in, in setting up this class, Jacob's Ladder would be the assigned reading coming into Now, Alan Parker, class. that's Chariots of Fire, right? Is I that what he think did? Hugh Hudson is Chariots of okay. Fire. Okay. I think Bugsy Malone is Alan Parker. Okay. Um, I was just trying to get a feel for Obviously, yeah. I know the three, three of the names, but not the other two. Yeah, so, so right. um, Alan Parker, uh, he did uh, Bugsy. Mm-hmm. Malone, he does uh, Pink Floyd's The Wall. He does Fame. Oh, okay. He does Angel Heart, Mississippi Burning. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, Evita. And so... Uh, his career. Yeah. Uh, and obviously Hughes' Chariot of Fire was a huge hit when it came out. Best yeah. Picture winner. Uh, but I want to talk about these guys who are developing interesting techniques for advertising and commercial usage. And they get called into Hollywood kind of one after the other. Uh, when someone's like, uh, I need this done. He's like, well, I know a guy. And he calls Ridley. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, oh, I know a guy. And they call Hugh. Yeah. And so all these guys get brought across the ocean to start making Hollywood movies, which kind of contrasts drastically with the stuff that the new Hollywood is putting out. Well, it's kind of an interesting precursor to what happens in the 90s with all the uh, commercial and music video directors. Yep. It's kind of like a second wind of that. And those, that's kind of a, a little bit more U.S.-centric. Yeah, you got your Bays and Finchers. Bays, and... Fincher, um, who else? Uh, uh, Spike, Jones. Yeah. Um, yeah, quite a few. Yeah, so. that same idea, though. Sure. But bringing these guys from yeah. outside the world to kind of redirect the studios in, in a new interesting direction and you know obviously tony and ridley have huge careers probably more so than the other three guys uh adrian had a pretty strong career early on with fatal attraction and a uh, decent proposal um god what a lot of horny movies that guy made huh oh yeah yeah that was his you know nine and a half weeks i think is him oh god that's him too yeah Man, wow just yeah what a horny filmography yeah. really into the erect really no thing. kidding um, so I think, you know, with this, we'd watch Jacob's Ladder in advance of the class. During the class, we'd probably show some clips from Legend and Alien, some of those early works from to- uh, Ridley, do Chariots of Fire, uh, some stuff from Fatal Attraction, um, maybe Pink Floyd's The Wall, and then Top Gun, I think, uh, getting Tony in there. Uh, and then the additional required viewing for that week would be Bugsy Malone. If you're not familiar with Bugsy Malone, uh, this was a musical uh, where all of the gangsters are played by child actors, and they're... Uh, Uzis and machine guns shoot whipped cream rather than bullets. I have um, never, I, I know nothing and about this. And this has Scott Bayo and Jodie Foster, John Cassissi, uh, and several others. Um, As children. Yeah, they're, they're kids. Yeah. What, what in the shit? Yeah, so this, this kind of surreal. Have you seen this? I have not. God. But it's fascinating to me. I, wow. Yeah, and so these I are kind of this. directors uh-huh. coming over. I've and heard making... the name of that film, but I didn't know that that was what it was a. What the shit? <laughs> yeah, it's, it was pretty wild. So it was a you know, stark contrast to your taxi driver that yeah. year. Uh, and so I, I think these guys who have this very dynamic visual style, you talk about Tony Scott and everybody thinks, you know, big action spectacle. But, I mean, you look at his first film, The Hunger, which is a very artistically inspired vampire romantic drama rather than a, you know, thriller of any – or action thriller, I should say, of any sort. Um, Chariots of Fire, which is a little more uh, – you know, historical. It's pretty. Yeah, it's a, it's a biopic, night. Oscar. But yeah, it's got that famous running in slow motion. Uh, when I run, yeah. I feel his pleasure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then you got your fatal attractions and Pink Floyd the Wall. And so these kind of erotic thrillers, it's all this kind of sex and art and uh, psychedelia and art and, and looking at what these guys are doing and how they uh, inspire a new uh, wave of, of early 90s classic Hollywood, late 80s, early 90s Hollywood yeah, totally. style. Huge influences. All right. Very cool. Very cool. So um, I've got multiple syllabi. 
Mm-hmm. I have two different. Keep it tight and keep it right. I'm gonna I'm gonna do what I can. Okay, so the first class um, possibility is um, just the idea of soldier experimentation. And so, I mean, this is I mean pretty basic and obvious. So you've got Jacob's ladder. You've Make got sure you it. a Universal Soldier actually oh, with Jean Claude Van Damme okay. and um, Dolph Lundgren. Dolph Lundgren. I was like, I can't. I got your back, Drago. Um, and so, yeah, there's that. And then um, probably ending it with the strange observation from my son while we watched Jacob's Ladder together, which was like, oh, this is dark Captain America. And that's an interesting conversation, probably with some research into the Tuskegee uh, experiments and uh, just that kind of stuff. And just talking about the sort of soldier experimentation sort of stuff that's part of the plot of that film. The other syllabus is um, psychedelia and um, the mind and uh, just human psychology. So you've got this film. Um, I think we read some Meister Eckhart. And talk about the afterlife. Um, he's got a selector readings uh, uh, text from Penguin uh, from 1994. That's pretty good. Um, there's a couple other books from Eckhart that are um, good, but as far as like a textbook, that's probably the one I'd assign. Is um, that that Penguin release of collected writings? That's what you're signing? Yeah, that's what I would assign. Gotcha. Yeah, that's one I read in seminary when gotcha. I was working on degrees. It's just uh, about dying. Yeah. Well, it's about a lot of things. Okay. It's it's about well, you know, it's about living. So it's about well, dying. Sure. There um, it is, baby. Uh, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Um, okay. would be also uh, something that we would read and think about as well. And then we would combine uh, this film. Oh, did I mention RoboCop in the Super Soldiers? I didn't. Oh, you didn't. Paul Verhoeven's RoboCop. Sorry. Excellent perfect. choice. I got, yeah. I got uh, perfect. I got momentarily Truly. distracted. Uh, then, uh, back to the class that I'm talking about now. Uh, Gaspar Noé's Enter the Void, mm-hmm. uh, thinking about it. And uh, thinking a little bit about Mandy uh, from uh, Cosmatos uh, nice. with Nick Cage and this idea of revenge. Uh, we've got uh, No Way and Death Itself and this sort of trauma because I think the Macaulay Culkin uh, storyline is actually the point of Jacob's Ladder in many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, there's trauma uh, for Jacob's Ladder. There is revenge for Mandy. And uh, finally, there is just death itself as sort of the uh, thematic of uh, Gaspar Noé's Enter the Void. I think it'd be fun to also do some uh, pulls from Climax to pair with that dance sequence. Totally. Yeah, for sure. Just for fun. I was thinking, uh, based on your newfound love of it, you could also get some Midnight Special in there. There's episodes, uh, your class I kind of... seen it. Or not Midnight Special, I'm sorry. Um, what's the, the, the Duncan Trussell cartoon. The Night oh, uh, Midnight Gospel. Mid- Midnight Gospel. Is. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah, Midnight Gospel. Because, uh, you know, there's episodes about death. There's mm-hmm. episodes about yeah. psychedelia. Um, yeah, that very both yeah, right topics are yeah. covered in there. So, yeah, those kind of thoughts. Your classes, Arthur and I, excited, apparently. Yeah. So, yeah, um, that's it. Either it's um, soldiers and experimentation or drugs. Or kind. both. Or both as a long class. I don't know. Because we could also talk about the government's hand in drug. Well, MK Ultra, right? Yeah. Wormwood or just very nearly war. made my syllabus for the uh, Super Soldier yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You've got uh, all the MK Ultra stuff you could talk about. You've got all the drug war stuff you could talk about. Whew! It's very man. It's going to be a hard pitch on that class. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't see many um, department chairs like say, "Oh yeah, go ahead." Oh, you want to talk about how the military does shady stuff to soldiers, and you want to talk about psychedelics? Uh, you just got to do it like the government does, and just pretend it's something else, and slide it in, and uh, get assigned. Ah, that's there it, it goes. Yeah. It's um, literature, guys. Totally, it's totally a literature class. Sign here, here, here. Don't <laughs> read the rest of it. Meister right. Eckhart. Yeah, it's gonna be fine. <laughs> yeah, we're reading Meister Eckhart. Don't worry about it. Um, yeah. So there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts in terms of teaching a class with this here movie. Let's actually do some analysis, though. We've sort of hinted at it. I'm ready. But let's get down to business. It's business. It's business. 
listener. And that business is, as always, analysis. So, um, I don't have a particular opinion as to what we tackle first. I just want to quickly lament the lament. death of the mid-budget thriller. True. We yes. lamented on this show quite often. We talked about it a long time ago on Focus and Death. Do it now. Just I've, yeah, I've been we, in this phase. Like whole... God, Focus is a good movie. Yeah. Forgot about it. Yeah. I've just been in this thing watching like... I, Something about '90s thrillers where you you have a big bankable star, you give like forty million dollars, and there's a return on it. And nowadays, if it's not a franchise or a sequel, a studio doesn't want it. And it's just sad. I, I don't know why. I guess you don't have proven yeah. entities, but I don't know. It's sad. And we talk about. I feel like we talk about this again. Focus was an episode where like that was all we talked about, but it's come up a lot. I would say last two years or so. I we, feel like yeah, it's been a we watch movies refrain. that would just make us go. <sighs> I think anytime we watch something from the '90s. That's really good with a really good cast that had a great response from a crowd yeah. that was made on low budget. It's like, why don't we do this anymore? Yeah, there is kind of a golden era in there after, like, post New Hollywood. You've got, like, uh, studio heads who are, like, willing to say they're artists and green light shit that is maybe not, like, an obvious sell. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it is just, like, a golden, like, 15 to 20 year period where you're getting a lot of, like, really cool mid-budget decisions being made. And I'd really look at it, I, I'd like to look at it in light of, say, Miramax and the rise mm-hmm. of the Weinsteins mm-hmm. against the rise of the MCU because we really had this kind of flourishing, independent world growing, which I think was a drawing different crowds. Well, this I is why the, I brought up A24 earlier. Well, yeah. I was gonna, well to, to point on to that, I think the contrast between this film and the Miramax rise is that this film is much more experimental uh, in terms of his visuality, Miramax films and uh, these sort of other indie wood uh, ilk are they're they're pretty realistic, you know. Yeah. They, they might be experimental in terms of narrative. Pulp Fiction, you know, is like playing with the narrative yeah. in a in a weird kind of way, but it's not it's grounded. But it's absolutely, in a way, it's yeah. absolutely yeah. grounded. There's no way in which you think, okay, and suddenly. You know, um, John Travolta's revolver will now shoot bananas. I mean, that's not going to happen. Right? Yeah, but, you know, uh, and again, I keep saying A24, but I do mean to include, like, Annapurna and, uh, oh, God, is it Mag- not Magnet, Magnet 2, though, but who put out Mandy? Neon. Neon, oh, uh, Neon 2, though. Yeah, oh, I can't good. remember who did Mandy. I can't remember who put out Mandy. Um, uh, it's Elijah Wood, uh, really his, really, his production it's company. It's him, I'm pretty sure. I forget who distributed it. Yeah, I know, um, yeah. But anyway, anyway. I th- all of these kind of... I wouldn't even call them studios. I guess they're the indie distributors, small studios, have kind of taken up. Thankfully, somebody you know else is doing these kind of movies now. Um, but you know, maybe are in this coaching tree of of Canon, Carol Co, Miramax, like all of these like eighties, nineties studios that were hungry to make a buck, so they were a little bit daring. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, man. Like there, there is some interesting stuff in there and. Obviously, the budgets are smaller. Um, you know, you look at the, the studios we just mentioned, most of their films, uh, the, the modern studios to work in that we just mentioned, are distributors, mostly like less than $20 million budgets for the yeah. most part. But, you know, that I think that is a factor of some of the, the other business stuff you talked about, Arthur, the pivot to temple and franchises. Yeah. But there, there is some, I don't know, there's a DNA, a shared heritage, it feels like, with some of these, these 90 flicks, 90s flicks that you've mentioned kind of you know, lamented uh, going away. Or like The Cell, which we have Or The Cell, yeah. We haven't yeah. talked about much, but yeah, which is another example, I think. Sure. Yeah. Ill, and yeah. that's, a, that's a big studio movie. I think of, you know, Identity would be another one kind of in the same vein as that. I, I, I watched Un, uh, Unstoppable the other day, on, you know, and uh, yeah. I mean, that's mid-2000s, but I mean, you got Denzel, you got Chris Pine, sure. this huge action, not, I mean, not huge, but this big action spectacle. Probably fifty to seventy million, 
And that just doesn't get made today, I don't think. Uh, we've talked about it. Uh, it seems like it comes up with Schumacher a lot, too. Yeah. Uh, when we talk about Schumacher movies. Lost Boys, yeah. Uh, Lost Boys, but also like Phone Booth. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Another, you know, late 90s, early aughts, which, you know, that's got its own interesting well, production like history because 11 Well, even like sort of semi-failures. Like, I'm thinking about Harley Davidson the Marlboro Man, the Mickey Rourke oh, film. Oh, God. Which is, a, <laughs> yeah. which, is a, which is, okay, not a, okay. not a great success of the movie, but it's really kind of interesting. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. In a lot okay. of ways. And, and it's sort of, again, major studio film. I'm. I'm not. I don't remember who's behind mm, it now. Is that it? Is it? Is it like it? Yeah. It feels like an MGM. Uh, might be I MGM. Could be wrong. But the point is, you know, there's some going to be some duds in there, no matter sure. what. When you make weird choices, but weird choices are cool sometimes, even if they don't always, you know, turn over. You might end up with a lot of like, uh, I don't know, uh, royalties checks. Uh, everybody might end up making money way later that yeah. they didn't expect to make. Right. Which is always cool. I, I don't know. I, I I'm just uh, I'm with you in lamenting that, but I, I think it was MGM. It, oh, hell yeah. My man. I know my studios. Uh, you know, I don't know for sure who releases what, but, you know, studios have a vibe, man. Yeah. Uh, they're not auteurs, and yet they kind of are by committee in a weird way. Uh, yeah, Hollywood's interesting. I, I, I guess, uh, it's. I think it's good that we lament these films, I guess. I just wanted to say, they're still kind of out there. Uh, I think they're just, well, if we all any of us ever get to go sit in a movie theater again, hopefully it'll be still be there. Still looking forward to seeing The Green Knight with Dev Patel, um, Lowry's new movie. I think the difference is, like, who's the biggest star to be in an A24 movie? Like, mainstream star. I'm not talking, like, Okay, that's a good point. Because like, Tony Collette's not a name. Florence I mean, Pugh? Maybe? No. She's on her way to be... Yeah, I, Arthur's right. It's all people who are, like, beloved within the industry or on their way about to break. Yeah. But there's nobody who's broken big already. I mean... Denzel, you know, your Tom Cruises, your George Clooney's, well, your Brad Pitt's. You'll get a Willem Dafoe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's always like actors who are at a point in their career where they're wanting to do artsy stuff. I mean, R. Pats um, is a huge name, but he was kind of in a part of his career where he was only doing indies. Yeah. But I, I, I think that's who you get. You will get a couple of actors who already broke, but it's usually actors who've like deliberately kind of like confused their agents for a couple of years. Yeah. I think you, there's nobody that's coming off a, a $100 million movie and doing an A24, I think. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, I, I think, well, the thing is, you know, you talk about the 90s and even the odds, you've got these just mid-budget, star-studded movies mm-hmm. that, you know, Will Smith is in. Will Smith's a big name for a movie of that nature, that stature. That's true. You're talking so, about with Focus, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. I just, I don't think that's we a have better those model. sorts of... Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, maybe Annapurna does some. Yeah, because uh, they did a, a most violent year when Jessica Chastain and um, oh my God, Oscar Isaac. Isaacs were already pretty big when that yeah. came out. And I know that's a few years old now, but I, I think... Jacob's Ladder does kind of weirdly sit out of what we're talking about, though, right? Because Tim Robbins has never been a big draw. I think he was here. In 90? Ah, yeah, Coming I guess you're right. Bill Durham was kind Alec of a pretty Man? big hit. Yeah, yeah that's Just true. before Shawshank. I mean, that's he true. doesn't go to Shawshank because of nobody. Well, and then Shawshank kind of should have been. It, it launches him, but should've doesn't. Should have been, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I'm always going to bat for Tim Rom. Do you know where he and I are birthday twins? Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I think there's Libras. I think it's the fact that he's 6'5 and looks like a kid is kind of probably holding him back. True, but yeah. He and I are weirdly, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one of the things Lynn really thing. liked right. about him. That makes sense. Was he had that baby face, and like yeah. he looked huggable, and that's kind of why he wanted Hanks, too, because they're that similar. But Tim Robbins is also He's six so foot five. good. Uh, that makes sense. Uh, I didn't realize that watching it, but it makes perfect sense now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's so funny. I just want to hug the guy. Anyway. he was that tall. That's where I'm at. Um, I, we do you want to? I, I think the studio stuff. So we we start there so often, but it is kind of always a fun place. I think it's to worth start. mentioning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it just especially when we're talking about the sorts of movies that were kind of a diamond. Like, again, the movies that ended up in discount bins for $5, right? 
mm-hmm. you know, and that's just those movies are have like been shifted another to Ted Robbins film, The Hudsucker Proxy. Oh, that's a good movie. Yeah, underrated Cohen's there. Uh, so I want to move to the '90s a little bit in more context, okay? Uh, and talking about um, kind of lefty government distrust. Well, that's the thing that's interesting, right? Jim Robbins in 2015 comes out and is like, "Oh, I think the reason this movie crashed is because we were getting ready to go to war." Yeah, and nobody was ready for like a pretty heavily anti-war film. Mm-hmm. And then you know, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it kind of misses that Vietnam slate of the early late '70s, early '80s. Well, and that's that's. I mean, if it had hit. When the script was written, maybe it, not, it hit but, around the same time as Platoon. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. That's, well, it feels like a movie set in 1980. Yeah, like yeah. I said earlier. Yeah. yeah, but it is set in 75. But it definitely feels like it should have been made in the 80s. Yeah, absolutely. And that is kind of what you said, Dustin. Yeah, I get what you're saying, Arthur. That if it had come out when like it, production first got rolling, yeah, to come along with that spa- that first, I guess maybe. It's, it guess it's like after fourth, Apocalypse Now where we get that huge like ten year span of yeah, late seventies. I mean, Born on the Fourth of July is what eighty four. Well, Platoon's eighty six. Yeah, Platoon's eighty six. Born on the Fourth of July is eighty eight or eighty nine. Yeah. yeah, so again, that's like towards the end. Yeah, but again, it is a kind of a a fifteen year span after uh, Apocalypse Now where everybody's like, oh, we're gonna make, we're all making non movies now. Well, cool, Full cool, Metal cool. Jacket, right? Also, which is eighty five, uh, seven, I think. Seven. It's a little bit later than you think. Mid eighties. But again, the, yeah, all of these movies come out in the nineteen eighties because it's like, oh, we're finally prepared to like start picking at the scab of Vietnam in cinema. Okay, let's do it. Um, and I, I think there is something interesting as far as the nineties, and we talk about this on the show all the time, right? The nineties have this weird run of. Uh, I mean, all the way from like, well, let's say 90 to 99, right? Jacob's Ladder to Enemy of the State with Will Smith. That's, you know, let's call those the bookends of this. It is a weird decade of like paranoid government conspiracy. Thrillers. Right. Well, I'm thinking the, the, the Uber example in the middle of all that's 1993 with uh, the X-Files. Oh, shit. Okay, duh. Yeah. Right. Perfect. That, like yeah. all of that going on in which, you know, your government is hiding things from you. That, black for a funnier version, yeah. Right, well, which are like quasi-supernatural in the case of the X-Files, but the idea is simply that the military-industrial complex has gotten so unwieldy and so bureaucratic and so compartmentalized that all those different pieces are at work you know, constructing a world that none of us would approve of if we were aware of it. And the, the secrecy itself is what oh, keeps it going. You have no idea what sort of mistake you've made, Dustin. Oh, do tell. You've lit the candle, and now I have to put on my tinfoil hat yeah, it's it's fully we're in tinfoil hat hours now, listener. Because welcome, welcome, the, uh, MK Ultra happened. It did happen, and so anytime Dustin or Arthur or I say something that sounds truly insane, and I think all three of us have already said things about the world that could qualify for that on this episode. But Probably. just remember that a scant, what, month ago? I'll the, edit mine and Dustin's out. Don't worry. Oh, that's fine. Uh, but look, I want them to have enough on me to black bag me when the time comes. Uh, I don't want there to be any dispute about it. Uh, the Navy, no less than, what, a month ago, finally declassified that for five years now they've had good-ass, juicy UFO footage just lying around. <laughs> so anytime we say something that sounds insane like MK Ultra's real... Just remember, all of the time they declassify shit that 10 years prior would have sounded absolutely insane. It doesn't mean aliens. It just means unidentified. But you're right. Sure. The point is, though, they but are always hiding stuff from us at all times. Aliens. But it could be. <laughs> but aliens. It, Art, Dustin's right. It's not. But Arthur is also right. It could be. Aliens. <laughs> Welcome to Earth. Thank you. Uh, but I, again, I, I only bring up that tangent, Dustin, because I think you're making a really valid point. And I, I think it's very easy, especially when you look at the history of like, uh, not, and I'm not just talking about the United States uh, specifically. I am kind of talking about the 
the whole world since the 20th century. You start talking about the history of war and more specifically like intelligence organizations in the context of warfare over the last 60, 70 years. The well of weird stories is truly bottomless. There is no bottom to the things that governments did in the 20th and early 21st century. As soon as you think you found the deepest, weirdest, darkest, scariest thing you've found, you will find something weirder. Absolutely. And I think this film weirdly overlays itself within the genre of horror, but also within science fiction, right? Well, and also yeah. within the political thriller, or and political, political conspiracy. Thriller. Yeah. It's kind of like three Venn diagrams. And and sort of the winning narrative, um, you know, sort of meta-narrative uh, over science fiction from basically the 50s moving forward was overwhelmingly in the 90s, you know, represents a bit of a transition because Independence Day is sort of like an example of the other side. But it's overwhelmingly the lefty sort of uh, perspective regarding science fiction. And so... You were specifically talking about like Hollywood in the 90s, right? Yeah, correct. Like Day of the Earth is still... Day of the Earth stood, Yeah, yeah. Invasion and, of the and, body snatchers. And everything that follows thereafter. And there's this sort of weird way in which whatever the government's hiding, it's hiding it because of its... Uh, again, sort of uh, power hungriness, mm -hmm. uh, defense of the status quo, their their love of secrets and compartmentalization, mind control, um, you know, societal sort of communal control, those kind of things, and that overwhelmingly sort of dominates the '90s. You know, what do you think? Go ahead, I'll let you get through your thought. Well, I, I have questions. For I, you. I don't know. Well, I mean, I know what happened, but. <laughs> There is a moment thereafter in which uh, it, it's sort of the way in which distrust of government becomes um, not the purview of the left, but it becomes the purview of the right. And this is going on during the 90s because it's the motivation behind, like, you know, Waco and later on uh, the, the uh, Oklahoma City bombing and uh, some of that sort of, you know, extreme right wing. Um, What's the word I'm looking for? The Terrorism? Well, those paramilitary yeah. organizations, uh, militia gotcha. uh, movements yeah, yeah, yeah. and th those kind of things. That, yeah, that, the three percenters and shit that we know so well today. The, the, yeah, all of those roots start in the 90s. Right. Totally. The, they, with like gun show culture. But, but they're, they're like the very, very small sort of, again, um, you know, hermetically sealed little part of American culture. And the overwhelming outside of that is not on the right. Well, it's because they just recently bought all their Apple II computers that they got from the Orders Bank heists. <laughs> I, look, listener, I... It's fun to talk about. It sounds insane, but it's all true. But it's overwhelmingly on the left at okay. that point. And I think Jacob's Ladder you is... Cult, you mean culturally? Culturally, yeah. Least. Okay, okay. Yeah, culturally. And so, like, uh, the, the the angle that the culture is going... Well, it's kind of... It, it's the Vietnam Watergate fallout, right? Right. For, you know, it's still only 15 years out or so. I mean, yes, Reagan and Bush, but we've got the Clinton era going on, and we're moving into that uh, moment. And, um, you know, 9-11 happens, and suddenly... What's that? Um, it's a thing. You um, forgot again. I forgot. Um, I will never forget. Um, but anyway, that happens, and weirdly, like distrust of government, desire for small government, sort of moves into this weird place of conservatism, in which uh, the distrust is just simply overreach, and uh, you know the size of government programs yeah. and or regulations uh, uh -huh. and those kinds okay. of things. And it, it, it ceases to be a conversation about what does this massive bureaucratic empire do and what is it – who's watching the watchers? It ceases to be that question. It's like don't pay attention to the watchers. All we need to do is make sure that they're there and that they're doing their thing and that we can you know dump all the you know, 
sulfuric acid we want to in our rivers, and it, it weirdly put shifts. a shooting range in the uh, National Gallery. Yes, yeah, you know about that? Uh, no, but <laughs> wow, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, they got their own cops. There's so many secret uh, law enforcement organizations that we're all just learning about now. It's truly baffling. But we don't sort of see these kinds of you know again uh, the the experimentation on actual Vietnam era soldiers is not entirely confirmed, right? Sure. It's not entirely confirmed. Yeah, it's not confirmed in the way that, like, uh, experimentation have, or even the, the Japanese Imperial Army during the war, both on, like, Chinese POWs and their own right. uh, political prisoners. Yeah, there's there's other similar stuff that's been totally confirmed, and this stuff's a little fuzzier. Yeah, like, or well, the Tuskegee experiments would yeah. be another example, right? uh, Yeah, stuff we know for sure happened. Right, gotcha. so it's, it's a fuzzier bit of territory, mm -hmm. but the way in which uh, people are investigating, thinking about, suspecting, and, you know, with a high degree of likelihood saying yeah you guys probably did this and the way in which that cultural moment is about holding those government powers accountable it sort of ceases at this moment but the 90s and jacob's ladder i think is is what i want to talk about is that it is about this sort of idea of government accountability mm -hmm. as a um sort of impetus behind the conspiracy theory that, gotcha. that sort of falls away and I, I just I just find that to be an interesting moment then we have this we have the x-files we have lots of other you know so science what do you, fiction what do you doing think this. I know we've, we've mentioned what you obviously 9-11 being like a kind of a huge cultural moment for yeah all, shifts all, things as we talk about basically every episode but what do you think is the what do you see as the the shift because you're, you're saying in the early 90s it feels more of a, a distrust of government because of a lack of accountability what do you think the motivation? Ha be where do you think it becomes? Is it overreach after it becomes? Because it is. It's weird. You're talking about like this this football, and you kind of turtles all the way down this in American history, right? And see, at the very least, modern recent American history, the football of not trusting the government getting passed from you know uh, across the uh, the spectrum since Eisenhower, basically since Eisenhower. Yeah, right. the football kind of jumps around like, oh, now this group doesn't trust the government. Now this group doesn't trust the government, right? Um, just stumbling from one catastrophe to the next as a federal administration for 50 years or so. What do you, I don't know, do you feel like there's any actual change? Because it does seem to me to be kind of similar points of contention, regardless of what side of the political spectrum is distrusting. Well, well I, have a, I have a hunch. But it, I guess what I'm saying is it always seems like a distrust of either of overreach or distrust of a lack of accountability. Right. And I think the distrust of overreach happens again from, you know, sort of right wing quarters. Mm -hmm. And then the uh, dis distrust for the lack of accountability mm -hmm. kind of comes from left wing quarters. And what I, what seems to be the pattern to me, mm -hmm. and this is just my observation, I don't know if it's right or not. Sure. Yeah. I'm just wanting to clarify what you're saying. But as veterans are sort of uh, repopulated within the general population, uh -huh. there continues to be this sort of general, like, wait a minute. You guys aren't telling the whole truth. You know, Agent Orange and other things that we know happen in Vietnam and the ways in which those things are sort of hushed up. And Gulf War syndrome. Gulf War syndrome, yeah. you know, in 1992, 93. Hushing of that. That, that as we have classes of veterans sort of reintegrating themselves into society, that's what happens. But um, afterward, though, we have uh, ramp-ups to war. So the moment 90 leading up to 92 mm -hmm. with uh, Saddam Hussein, mm -hmm. Kuwait, and all that stuff going on, and then 9-11, and the continual endless war well, on terror. Ruby Ridge, Waco, Oklahoma City, right in, in the mid-90s. So you have these sort of like uh, catalysts that drive people to the security of strong you know, governmental force. Mm. Right, and that sort of minimizes 
that overall suspicion. And so the suspicion then just sort of turns it over to, I can't do what I want to do. Do I get to pick my doctor or not? You know, those kind of well, Obamacare questions. Well, I guess that's the thing questions. that's so interesting about the last, you know, 25, 30 years of American, you know, discourse, right, is it is time and time again, weirdly, uh, conservatives being totally right for the wrong reasons mm-hmm. uh, about what the government's doing, even like in some of their more... Uh, hmm. I'm trying to think of like the diplomatic way to say this. We all believe kind of nutty things from time to time, sure. Uh, because I think it's as we talked about, like the 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 part of your brain that allows you to have like kind of mystical woo woo thinking that makes a film like Jacob's Ladder fun is the part of your brain that allows you to think things like, mm, "Am I always being told the entire truth by my government?" Right. Probably not. And I guess what I'm saying is... Well, I think a class of oh, people... Ahead. Well, uh, when you have this sort of class of people who have been under a form of mind control and have now been redispersed back into society after a major military conflict, that they sort of... The woo-woo of that mind control begins to wear off. They go, wait, wait, wait a minute. Well, yeah, there is always a big... It does seem to be, if you you know kind of chart the history of American war, especially you know Korea, Vietnam, and the war on terror, those three specifically... There does seem to be like a kind of a, a, a huge string of uh, veteran activism, uh, mm-hmm. anti veteran anti war activism that follows like the la- first right. ten years of conflict like that, or right? First even five years or so. Yeah, it comes comes about very quickly, t- typically. Uh, basically, as soon as the first batch of you know boots on the ground get home. Yeah, they're like, wait a minute, we shouldn't have been there. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess the thing that I, I I'm having a hard time putting a pin on or putting a finger on to that you've said that's interesting to me. I I, I guess what you're saying as I'm hearing it is it really does always seem like the same complaint is what mm-hmm. I'm trying to get at. Yeah. Which I think is really interesting. It's a way, well, it's a way in which I, when I wonder about the intentionality of conflict now, because it does reset the cycle. That was the other part of my thesis that I was going to get to. And I mean, that's, no, that's, that's a good place to get to that, that it works cyclically that we've gone so long since Vietnam, we got to have us another conflict, but they're going to start really looking into our back door mm. and they're going to figure out what we're up to. So Saddam Hussein's a really bad guy and uh, we need Kuwait back. <sighs> Okay, that was not much of a thing because it only lasted a couple months. Uh, oh, good. Not good, but good. Pearl Harbor. I mean, good 9-11. I mean, this moment happens. We have another opportunity. Let's invest a lot of time, energy, propaganda, resources, and re-indoctrinate a group of people. And then on we, it goes. On it goes. Yeah, again, turtles all the way down. Yeah. It, it is. No, it, I mean, it is. I mean, it, yes. Yeah. I, I take that as both critique and as a emphasis. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I'm agreeing with you. Uh, whew, that is interesting. Um, I don't know. It feels like there's more that's going to go unsaid if we switch topics, but we got we got to because we're going to talk about yeah, it for the rest of the show for sure. But I am very. I don't know, man. I think there's a lot here to think about in terms of just which side of the political spectrum is distrusting the government at any given time. Right. There's a lot to be gleaned there, both like culturally and sociologically, in terms of just like thinking about. Uh, how a populace of a given country responds to strife. And this movie is situated in one of those particular cycles, which is the left A really weird one, too, yeah. right? Where not a whole lot's going on. Right. Uh, at the least 90s is the weird home. that way, yeah. Yeah, it was kind of the, the Pax Americana. We're if all there was very one. afraid of fascism in the 90s. Not for long enough, we weren't. Not for long enough. Well, we become afraid of it again in the 20-aughts, or 20-teens. That's true. Uh, it is interesting, though, the... Uh, fear, I guess, that this film produces and the ways in which uh, the fear of conspiracy, I think, is really interesting as we're talking about this. So let's go ahead and leave the tinfoil hats on for just a bit. Um, I don't know. That, that's a very specific fear, right? The fear that you're being gaslit by the whole of reality. 
um, which is what happens in this film, right? right? Jacob knows something is wrong, and he can't get a single person to yeah. tell him he's right until he meets back up with his buds uh, from the war. And then they're all like, as you know, as we're kind of talking about, you know, this this veteran activism that always seems to happen after a major conflict. This, it, it's only people who are there that can go, "Yep, you're right. You're not crazy. It absolutely happened that's that way." That's the thing that's going down. Yeah, that's the thing that it happened. You, you're right. Yeah, you're being lied to. Um, I don't know, man. Uh, I don't, it, it's like this film is full of specific adult fears. You know what I mean? Fears of like a, a romantic partner, or a, you know, domestic partner who is. Uh, maybe evil, uh, maybe mm-hmm. conspiring against you. Fears of a dead child. Fears of uh, you love know. lost with a maybe a yeah fear, loving partner. Yeah, fear, yeah. Fear of a, a former romantic partner that you screwed it up with. Fear of uh, the government coming after you. Fear of doctors uh, holding you against your will. All of these are like such specific grown person fears. Uh, just like dying mm-hmm. is kind of a, a much more adult fear for most people. Um. I don't know. I, I'm really impressed by the way this film, and I'm not going to like attribute the, any of this to the director. Although, again, as Arthur talked about, like Adrian's got some very specific visual touchstones he's coming to the, to the table. Francis Bacon, yeah, you know, but Gustav Dore, yeah. The screenplay's also got a lot of interesting stuff, but also in the screenplay, all the demons are like literal biblical, like Western Christian demons, um, which I think is kind of a fun choice, but definitely would not have worked as well on screen, mm-hmm. probably. But so again, I, I don't want to credit it to any any particular person in the production but it is i don't know there's a maturity to the horror in jacob's ladder that i think is goes hand in hand with all the you know government stuff you you've already touched absolutely on. well and I, I let's move into this uh this idea of death and dying and i i mean let's talk about the this movie's afterlife i mean we've already you know revealed that this is a movie in which uh, bruce willis has been dead the whole movie yeah i think that the thing that the film does so well as arthur's mentioned it's basically as soon as we get out of vietnam uh one of the first shots is tim robbins looking at a sign that says hell yeah like I, I, it's so quick. Yeah. That, yeah. That the movie says this character is literally in hell right now. Right. And then he's told what four times I think over the course of the movies that he's dead when he gets his palm read when he's in the hospital a couple more times I think. Yeah. Right. It's it as the the hints that he's dead. Uh, the longer the movie goes on, the quicker and with more frequency. Or I guess yeah, the the, the less frequent the you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I do think the movie is um, theologically mislabeled though in that way How because it sounds like purgatory more to me than it does to hell. You know, I, I know sure. the Meisterek art quote. You know, it, it uses the phrase hell, and I mean that's you know that hell is sort of this purging away. Um, well, that's some real like universal salvation theology of, of there, attachment. Right? But within you know again, or kind of it, Buddhist understanding of death, right? A right. kind of Buddhist way of getting through like Christian afterlife theology. Well, I, th- I think the thing with hell is he's on a train, right? I mean, I think that passage is the kind of the idea there, not so far that he's in hell, but he's on a passageway. Yeah, he needs, to, he needs to move on, but he can't quite get there yet yeah. because there's some pur- pur- purgation. He's got business. Well, there's happen. that great part where he pays the cab driver what he's got on him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, the share on, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. He gets ferried by the taxi driver. Yeah, I really like that this film is set in this nondescript New York. God, so we good. we get a couple of skyline shots, I think, early on. Yeah, but we really refrains from that and kind of stays in the underbelly and the subway tunnels or the, mm-hmm. the first alleyways. T- and, yeah, street level. Yeah. yeah. My first viewing of this film, you know, before watching it for the show, I, I thought it was contemporary. I thought it was supposed to be like all the post war stuff was the ninety. It was only like 
reading about the production well, of the film. That I, I mean, I was immediately taken aback. like, this is 1990. Tim Robbins is too young. To be a non-vet. Exactly. Yeah, I thought exa- the same yeah. thing on my yeah. first watch. But yeah, it was only on doing research about the film that I was like, oh, that was, oh, it's supposed to be 70s New York. Well, that makes more sense. I mean, it looks like 70s New York. Sure. So, yeah. yeah. Well, and again, I, that is, I think, kind of deliberate, right? It is trying to evoke scary 70s New York, but it is also a kind of nondescript New York out of place, as you said. Yeah, I, I think a lot of the vehicles are older models, so they kind of refrain from dating themselves in that way. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean they're not like '80s models cars driving around. Right, they're I, I think seventies or earlier. You know, like a like a savvy viewer in 1990 would know this is a period piece, but in the 20 teens, it's less clear. Yeah, or 2020 at this point. Yeah, I'm like I don't. I, yeah, I was I was I was less clear. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. What? Uh, hmm. There's so much to talk about. Uh, I kind of want to talk about the. The sort of the assumptions of masculinity that happen in this film, because I think there's a lot going on there. And it's not, it's one of the more like in the subtext themes going on. But I think there's some really interesting stuff about like fatherhood and soldiering and uh, just like trying to keep your head down and survive. Mm-hmm. Um, like uh, in a very. Uh, Accurate for both the 90s and the 70s. Like well, weeping because he wasn't expecting to see that sun today, because if he hadn't seen the sun, he wouldn't have thought about him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but then also, like, uh, Jesse really having no patience for him needing to be emotional, yeah. uh, which I think yeah, is Yeah, which is nuts, right? Yeah, it, it doesn't feel... Like, the lines themselves feel very much like kind of hacky male screenwriter lines, but... Um, Pena, I forget her first name. Elizabeth. Elizabeth, thank you. Uh, does a great job. Like she makes Jesse feel like a real character. There, you you believe that Jesse knows they're both in hell from the gig. Especially for me on this watch, I was like, oh, okay, she knows where they're at. Mm-hmm. She's just like trying to get him to be in the now, be in the moment, and have fun with her. Yeah. Because as soon as they acknowledge where they're at, it's the game's up. Right. Uh, but again, I, I I don't know. I think that character is kind of poorly written to my mind. But I think the performance itself like brings a lot of complexity that's interesting. I don't know. I like the the idea of uh, the, this girlfriend who is not signed on for emotional labor. I think it's an interesting. <laughs> yes, she is not. That's not what this arrangement is. Yeah. Just because we live together does not mean that I, this is what this is. You yeah, don't get to talk about it, your life before. Yeah, me. If, if you're gonna cry and stuff, you need to get rid of those pictures. Yeah, like, you're gonna talk about your ex wife and your kids. Nah, no, not about it. I don't know. It's kind of interesting, right? It's kind of juxtaposed with that fun, playful banter where he is in bed with Sarah. Yeah, right. Oh. Where she is kind of. He's like he knows he can say. Well, she does have nice thighs, and he can play with her because he, she's going to be more responsive to that kind of That's the engagement. thing that's so... Man, that is the part where the movie, like, if you're not on board with Jacob's Ladder when you go to a third timeline, I don't know what to do for you. <laughs> right. This movie's got it all. <laughs> yeah. Because that's the point where it comes along... Well, and I'm like, wait, 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 is this real? Uh, yeah. Well, it's, it's, this, it's like a moment in the movie where any, like, sufficiently discerning viewer has figured out that it's an Owl Creek Bridge. Right. Like any discerning viewer knows that this is a he's been dead the whole since the start of the movie. So then they throw in a third timeline to really fuck with you and you have no idea what timeline is real. Like what timeline's the current timeline. And I yeah. love that about yeah. this movie. Um because you're right, Arthur. Like it it, it number one gives us kind of a, a moment of comedy that the film really needs. It gives us like a lighthearted Tim Robbins like just getting to be happy for a little bit. Uh and also just makes the rug pull that happens after it yeah. so much more effective. Yeah. But yeah, God, what a funny scene where like uh can you believe I was married to Jesse for the post office? Good bit. Yeah, yeah it's good wild. Bit. Uh, also love that he's a postal worker. Uh, I, I, I don't know. That's just fun for me. My dad was a postal worker, and we talked about it on the show recently. Um, mm-hmm. But he was. So that's fun for me. And there was something I was reading. I can't remember. But it was talking about how he's kind of 
removed himself from the upper caste system and put himself into the lower caste yeah, system. Yeah, there's right. lip service the paid to man. it. Yeah, Dean Aiello yeah. kind of references He's got a PhD it. in philosophy. And he, he chose to work his at His Brooklyn office. house isn't a shab. I mean, that, the mm-hmm. Brooklyn house is nice. It's real great. Oh, in, with his wife and family? Yes. Oh, that's a nice house. Yeah, yeah him and Jesse's spot, like, that's a believable apartment. Yeah. Yeah, but the, the other, yeah, that's like a brownstone. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. a nice, that's a nice pad. I don't know what she did for money. Uh, yeah, I, it is kind of a weird, I don't know, it, it's a very movie choice, uh, it's like, you know, Dalton from Roadhouse, right? Like, I, I can't think of a whole lot of, this is maybe the only other film, those only two films where our protagonist has a PhD in philosophy and does something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if there's another example, but it is, I, I don't know, man, it's, it's very much a Hollywood thing, right? I, yeah. I don't know a single, have I, any of you, you guys have met lots of interesting folk, have either of you met somebody that had a PhD they didn't use? Yeah, the people with like masters and uh, uh, graduate degrees they didn't use, or like or bachelors and masters, but I never met somebody with a PhD they didn't use. Yeah, yeah I've known. A I don't couple. really know a lot of doctorates. So. I don't either. Yeah, I mean the few I do. No, are, I, I well the guy I worked for at the theater was a medical doctor. No kidding. Yeah, that rules. Huh. I love that. I don't know. It does. I, I guess it's maybe a, a true enough ism that uh, when a film does it, everybody just kind of goes, oh, "Okay, I guess sure, why not." But it is, uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting character choice because we don't get a lot about Jacob. Like, we don't get a lot of his interior life, really. No. no. Um, it, it is a real kind of blank slate for the audience that Tim Robbins is giving us, despite being a great performance. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing I wanted to mention before we got out, I don't know what else you guys have, but um, the fact of uh, the sort of priestly role of this um, chiropractor mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, against uh, the role of medical science, you know, that's going on throughout. So, yeah. I mean, part of the sort of investigation of is him realizing um, in the afterlife part of what happened and what got him killed was this sort of LSD experimentation, all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff that was going on. Um, and that's, you know, the government did this to him, but he's just sort of coming to terms with the circumstances surrounding his death and the fact that his own buddy stabbed him. Um, but while he is um, sort of doing this in this quasi-afterlife slash real world mm. and working through this, it is through the ministrations of this chiropractor who is this angelic presence in his life. And, of course, chiropractic um, as a... It's a pseudoscience, I'll say it. Science. It's a pseudoscience, I'll say it. Yeah. yeah it, it, I know a chiropractor. I'm not scared. He doesn't listen to it, the show. It, it's alternative medicine, for sure. I mean, and I think that is part of what the movie is trying to suggest you as well. do some research on the guy that invented chiropractic. Uh, I'm sure he's a lunatic. Um, but, yeah, you know, I'm thinking this is combined. And, you know, chiropractors are oftentimes also into acupuncture, mm-hmm. which connects us, you know, I mean, LSD and psychedelia itself sort of becomes this whole subculture of alternative medical practices and alternative religious and mystical practices. Well, and I guess that's where I will go ahead and back off of calling chiropractic pseudoscience, which is to say anytime an alternative is produced uh, that is outside the mainstream, it does get written off very quickly. Mm-hmm. The only danger with that is, you know, people who think vaccines uh, cause, you know, your child to be neuroatypical, you know, drinking bleach. You open, you crack the door open and then it gets blown open by some weird shit. But I, I guess... Using the term alternative is, you know, a little softer, and I'm I'm, I'm validating you. I, I will go so far as to say this: um, I've had my spine out of alignment, and a chiropractor has helped. There, and that's I've know people who swear by going to a chiropractor. I go to a chiropractor. Yeah, I know I, you do. And, yeah. I, and I also know that chiropractors um, oftentimes have a business practice in which they keep coming, getting you to come back in, come back in, come back in because they're charlatans trying to take a bunch of money from you. So I mean, it's like a both end. I mean, look, I got to do a lot of talk therapy. That's just paying for a friend who's not going to interrupt you, right? <laughs> I mean, it's shit. It's all. 
McGriff, baby. Uh, you think that's, uh, that, that spin class you're going to is opening up your chakras? No, you're spin. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's the, the gym, the greatest it, hustle. Yeah, it, endorphins feel good. Period. Yeah. For um, sure, for sure. But there is this idea that the modern scientific clinical system is cold, sterile, and without life-giving organic sort of connection. Yeah. And I think the film is sort of driving the viewer to that kind of view as well. Well, it's it's a throughout the film it indicts institutions, right? Right. And the the coldness of that the institution. Mm-hmm. That's all I had. I'm just agreeing yeah. with you. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's just simply saying investigate and uh, that there is a part of our brain that has sort of been disconnected from contemporary life. I'm not going to say modern life because I don't want to get too tied up with modernism. But this idea of contemporary life itself has sort of, uh, you know, again, over compartmentalized our own sort of psychological structures in such a way that we are not as connected. We're not as um, we're not we're not making use of the resources within ourselves, within the rest of, you know, ancient cultures. Uh, that could be useful to us. Well, in that, within the text of the film, that does produce something kind of interesting, right? Because it is the palm reader. It is Louis. It is the journalist uh, who's trying to crack the case wide open on uh, the BZ that was used. Like, all of these figures... Uh, the Jake, hippie LSD cook. That's who I was yeah, talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. He wasn't a journalist. That's right. Yeah, the, the hippie LSD cook who made the stuff they got gassed with. Yeah. Maybe is also in purgatory with them. Maybe is a figment of his met unclear not important the point is anytime jacob has a meaningful connection with somebody as you're talking about they're countercultural they're countercultural and they remind him no you're not crazy you are right there is a disconnect with the world that you were living in i'm feeling it too it's weird that nobody else is talking about it huh yeah and it's pretty dope and i yeah it is the film getting to say some interesting things within the the dream space that you know most of the narrative takes place within and i guess this is the homily of the moment i think that the film sort of produces okay is that in order to be a spiritually awakened person what you have to do is to point out that um what you're doing is playing a game with rules that are entirely arbitrary mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, that it mm-hmm. is just a game and the stupid Go. rules yep. don't matter now it's not very fun to play a game with this kind of person if we were all sitting around and uh we were going to play what's in Arthur's chest of games here. We're going to play Sorry. Okay. Right? That's the game I'm seeing right now. Okay. Sorry, which is what, what we roll dice and we move. Was it, was it flip cards? Both. If there are, there are cards and dice. I think. Or if there are dice. There are cards, you move spaces, you can knock people home. But yeah, Arthur says, I get to move four places. I'm like, you're not moving anywhere. You're not moving at all. You're moving a little thing that's not you. That's not you. You are not the little peg. I am obnoxious, and we're not having fun with that game anymore. But that's what the awakened spiritual person does. And, of course, you throw this person out of your home, or you have them crucified, or, or. And that's that's part of what the film is sort of You can't reform the police. They're doing what they're supposed to do. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. You start saying that, and you sound like an asshole. Exactly. That's that's why I said let's break out our tinfoil hats, right? Because as soon as you start to say the agreed-upon story maybe isn't the whole story— you do start to alienate people very quickly yeah. if you're not deliberate in how you approach the situation. And I'm not trying to draw a through line, but well, I am trying to draw a through line between spiritual awakening and political awakening because they are the same thing. I think so. Uh, I've read the Gospels. One without the other is irrelevant. Uh, as somebody, I, I don't know. I don't want to get too much. I, I like that we're trying to end on a homily though, because I think it's a, a good point that the film makes that you're you're tying up for it, Dustin. That it is, it it is through accepting that. Yeah, maybe the look. Uh, you see somebody on the street talking to themselves. Don't get weirded out. That's just what you do when you pray, baby. You're mm-hmm. just doing it out loud. Right. Uh, we're all just, yeah, we're playing the rules that we've agreed upon. And sometimes 
it's better to acknowledge that the rules are made up and the points don't matter. Right. And uh, if you start saying things like property is theft or whatever it is that sort of like goes along those lines, you become obnoxious because everyone else wants to just keep playing the game. But that's what it is to be that person. And, and wisdom is knowing when to point out that you're just playing a stupid game. And try to help people jack out of the matrix or whatever it happens to be. Well, because as Dustin says, you can be a pedant, but you can also be a sage, right? Mm-hmm. Like sometimes you need somebody like Louie to say, "We're all dying, baby." Like yeah. you need somebody to to remind you that you're not losing your mind in a way that is gentle and soft and not pedantic, right? Um, I, yeah, I think that is what Jacob's ladder, especially through the character of Louie, has going for it. Right? It is like he's uh, able to do so without being a douche. Uh, we're all Job, man. Be Job. Yeah. Like, what are you gonna do, man? Nothing. You're just uh, we're, we're all just tumbling down down the turtle's back uh, to keep the metaphor going. For sure, for sure. Any other big thoughts on Jacob's ladder before we render a verdict? Uh, do either of you think you're dead? Well, soon. Okay. All right. I thought we were going to play in the space for a second. <laughs> oh yes, Anne's. All right. Well, that's fine. We can render. <laughs> My a verdict. stoicism reared its head. All right. Let's render a verdict. Epictetus. All right. Moving right along. Um, Arthur, what do you say? Shove a trash for Jacob's ladder shelf. For sure. I think it's, if nothing else, it's definitely worthy of discussion. So it's definitely a shelfable film. Rad. What do you say, Dalton? Yeah, shelf. For the same reason that you got to shelf something like uh, The Sixth Sense or Fight Club or The Empire Strikes Back. It's got a twist so famous, it's been copied an innumerable amount of times and, you know, was already a famous twist before it was used here. Uh, I think it's a ton of fun. It's weird as hell. And there's just, as we've lamented a lot, it's just not a movie they made for very, it's not a kind of movie that got made for very long in the history of Hollywood. Absolutely. I like it a lot. Uh, yeah, I'm going to say that Shelf for the same reasons. We've done everything we've talked about, frankly, is a reason to Shelf. This, this movie is that, you know, um, rife with conversation. Plus, there's an octopus sex scene that we didn't even talk about. Uh, and so. It was a demon. It was a demon, but it, octopoidal. Yeah. It's why tentacles and tails are involved and, and hooves. So it's a real chimera situation. And we did not even talk about that. So that's how much is going on in this movie. So yeah, for sure. Shelf. I didn't talk about any of the faceless people. One of my uh, uh, nightmare fuel, baby. Mm, uh, speaking of, have you guys watched that documentary about sleep paralysis? Uh, I have. You have? What's I can't remember what's called. I don't know. What it's called either. I forgot now. But I watched it because I'd do it. Um. Yeah, the, the, I, I don't know. Will this resonate with you? Then maybe. They interviewed a lot of people with sleep paralysis, and they said the first time they watched Jacob's Ladder, they felt seen for the first time because mm. of the shaky head thing. Yeah, I mean, that. yeah. Have you ever seen that? I have, sleep yeah. Paralysis? I, mean, okay. I know most like people it. have, like, the, the chest thing. But I don't, have a, I don't have a chicken and egg, you know, as to which happened first. Gotcha. So I don't know what... Well, Is it the nightmare? Yep, the nightmare. The nightmare, That's yeah. That's what it's called. Good call. Yeah. Um, Jacob's Ladder gets talked about a lot in that movie. Yeah. I just want to make sure we talked about it before we... Closed for show. So hey, if you're gonna like uh, tune in to us and have conversations with us, you can do this on the internet. Um, Dalton, you want to say those words, or do you want me to? I'll do it real quick. Um, yeah, we're on Twitter at good underscore trash. We've tried to tweet some things recently that uh, are, are related to the life and times under which we're living. Um, I don't know. Uh, Brigham gave us money, and that's why we talked about Jacob's ladder. But I don't don't give us money this week if you're not already. Ah, that feels weird. Um, go somewhere else. You know where you should be giving money right now. If you don't, like I said, uh, my Twitter DMs are open. I know Dustin's are too. Um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, hit us up if you have questions about, or, you know, if you want somebody that's maybe already vetted, uh, places to give money. Um, look, nonprofits just make you feel better sometimes and you throw money at them. They're not all good. Uh, do, do, do your homework. 
truth. So I don't know. Give money there. But if you want to ask us uh, about what we're doing, that's at good underscore trash on Twitter. Uh, good trash genre cast at gmail.com. If you've got long form feedback, um, uh, rave, review, subscribe. Who gives a shit? Uh, go listen to a film podcast that doesn't have as many white people on it. Uh, if you're looking for more film podcasts, uh, who shot you is a good one. Uh, they're on max fun. I really like them a lot. Um, Feminist Frequency Radio is really good. Uh, they had a great episode about uh, how to do cultural analysis in times like these, uh, or just the act of analyzing uh, a culture. Anyway, that's that's what I wanted to say uh, about that stuff. Cool. Hey, we're we gonna do another movie, Arthur. Oh, I suppose. Mm. What are we gonna do? Um, let me check my itinerary. Uh, it looks like we're going back to 1979. Excellent. Good year to talk about the Castle of Cagliostro. All right. I know. Why do I know the name? I've I've never seen this, but I know the title of this film. It. Uh, it's it's from a little director you might know by the name of Hayao Miyazaki. That's why I know the title uh, of this movie. It's the Lupin the Third movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because it's on HBO Max, right? Netflix. Oh, it's on Netflix. It may be on HBO Max, but it's on Netflix. I don't know if it's with the Jubilee stuff. Okay, that's why I know the title of this cool. one. That's going to be fun. I've heard this is really good. His first film. That's what I thought. Yeah. Uh, I've, I only know Lupin the Third from I think it's the it's either the anime series that directly preceded this movie or uh, succeeded this movie. Uh, but that's that's my exposure to Lupin the Third. So um, do you know anything about this guy? Not a bit. He's based on a, he's an anime character that's based on like a, a kind of a, a Robin Hood type from French folklore who is Lupin the First. Okay. Um, and yeah, he's he's Lupin the Third. Yeah, he's, they steal stuff. It's 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 fun. I think you're gonna dig this. I'm down. All I'm, right, we haven't done anime in a, a year or two, right? It's been a long time. Yeah, this will be fun. Well, I tell you what we do here at the Good Trash Undercast right now. We're keeping it weird, keeping it all the time, and you keep watching, and we'll keep talking. We'll see you all next time.